Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Joshua chapter 24, we're going to read the first 13 verses this evening. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and to summon the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hands, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. You went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. I would imagine for most of you that one of the most difficult subjects in school was perhaps history. Not because it was the most challenging, but for many, especially those of us in our adolescence, we did not understand why it was necessary or how it was relevant to us. We thought that happened so long ago Why does it matter, and why do I need to know about it? But I think there is probably no subject that grows in interest than that of history as we age and hopefully mature. I think this was the case for me as a child. can't completely blame it upon my teachers, but I found history to be a subject that was very dull. And it really was not until college that I had a 
excellent history teacher. And that really changed everything for me. Dr. Don Claspel taught me world history, and because I was so enamored by his teaching and by his style, I took an elective class from him, the history of California. I went to college in California and uh, decided to take an elective. All my friends thought I was crazy because he was a very hard and difficult teacher, but I enjoyed his classes so much that I decided to take an extra class that I didn't technically have to. And he was amazing at connecting the events of the past with the present and showing how all these events shaped our present day. And I was amazed. And being a Christian college, and he himself being a Christian, he showed how all these things were not by chance or by happenstance, but they were orchestrated and shaped by the hand of God. And so now, as I'm older... I very much appreciate history. I love documentaries about history. I love reading books about history. And I'm continually amazed at the relevance and practicality of that subject. For as the famous quote goes, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Also another quote that I recently saw, people without the knowledge of their past of their history, of their origin, and of their culture is like a tree without roots. And I think that is an adequate quote. And that is something that Joshua does not want the people of God to be. A rootless tree. He wants them to know their history, especially the history of God, the great covenant-keeping God. And as we see Joshua recounts the history. It's actually the Lord that recounts the history through Joshua. And it's the history of God's covenant faithfulness. How God was faithful to his covenant. How he made covenant with Abraham. And now how that covenant is being fulfilled in Israel. And now we as new covenant believers can see how it is even greater fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to see that in two points Tonight, as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper and receive his communion. Those two points are this. Abraham called to receive a seed, a land, and a blessing. And second, Israel called forth as the fulfillment of that seed, land, and blessing. First, Abraham called forth to receive the seed, land, and blessing As it has been a couple weeks since we've been in this book of Joshua, let me remind you of where we are. As Joshua does in chapter 23, he calls the people forth. And here in chapter 24, he does the same. He calls all of the people, and from them the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel. And Joshua begins to recount history to them. How they have gotten to this point in redemptive history. And he does so so that they can go forth and be prosperous and successful. That they would go forth and be blessed by the Lord. Joshua's desire as his time as their leader, and indeed his life in the land of Israel is drawing near. He's getting to the point of of going the way of his fathers, as he says in chapter 23, is about to die. His desire is for them to 
settle well in the lands. As you know, Israel has, under his watch, not only entered into the land, they have conquered the land, they have divided the land, and now they are beginning to settle in the land. And Joshua has been with them every step of the way, but now he is about to depart. But he wants to remind them of all that God has done for them in the past so that they would be reminded again in the present, going into the future. And so these indeed, chapter 23 and chapter 24, Joshua's final remarks. And we'll see that this is really, truly covenantal renewal that Joshua is engaging into with the people of God so that they would understand the origins of that covenant. And we must understand the origins as well. And Joshua rightly begins with Abraham. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me very quickly to Genesis chapter 12, a passage that is very familiar to us. But this is the call of Abraham. Remember, out of all the people of the earth, God calls forth here Abram before he changes his name to Abraham. And says this in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know this is the call of Abraham, God calling forth Abram, calling him forth into a covenant. And we see there in Genesis chapter 12, three promises, the promise of a seed or a child, the promise of land, and the promise of blessing. And what we often do is when we read those things, we go immediately to the fulfillment. We say, okay, this is where God promises it. Yep, here it is where it is fulfilled. As if it was fulfilled the very next day. We make a straight line from promise to fulfillment. And that's what is easy for us to do as we look back on the past. But to be honest, we got to be reminded that oftentimes God made the promise. And there was many years, many generations, hundreds and hundreds of years before the promise until the fulfillments. And even that history was not a straight line. It was a very curvy line if you look at it from a human perspective. You wonder, is that promise really going to be fulfilled? Is God really going to keep that which he has said? Because you see all of these twists and turns in the plots. But what we see in history is that God is always faithful to his promises. But his ways and his means of accomplishing those promises are not our ways and are not our means. Oftentimes we want things, as you know, fulfilled instantaneously. We want things filled immediately. We want them yesterday. But that's not how God works, is it? And we see that here in Joshua chapter 24. As Joshua recounts the history, he recounts the history of Abraham. 
And we see that, indeed, God calls forth Abraham. But, as he says here, we know what that truly means. For Joshua begins this way. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. We see that God called forth Abraham from idol worship. Abram was called forth from paganism to worship and serve the true and living God. So Joshua is telling all of Israel, your father, Father Abraham, was an idol worshiper. And indeed, he came from a long line of idol worshipers. His father was an idol worshiper, and so was his grandfather. And if the Lord did not call him out of that, he would have remained there on the other side of the Euphrates as an idol worshiper. He would have remained in paganism. But it is this one, Joshua is saying, and God is saying through Joshua, this is the one who I made my covenant with. Now often we think that God chose Abraham because Abraham was just a little bit better than the rest. That Abraham was head and shoulders above everyone else. But that is not the case. That's how we choose, right? We choose on the basis of appearance. We choose on the basis of what we think is right. But God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the hearts. And what we see with Abram is that before he was called forth, his heart was dark and black. Abraham was lost in sin. He was blind in his understanding. He was stubborn in his will. He was vain in his thoughts. He was lustful in his affections. He was corrupt in his whole being. He was a depraved sinner. He was an idol worshiper. Just like you and me. Before the Lord called us forth. That just as we were lost, before God radically redeemed and saved us, so too was Abram. For we read of this in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Each and every one of us can say that is truly our testimony before God called us forth. Abram was that way, and so were we. And I think Joshua begins this way, To remind all of the people, all of Israel, and us as well, that this is all of God's grace. That this is all of God's mercy. As he recounts the history of God's covenant faithfulness, it is God's covenant of grace. Indeed, that's what we call this covenant, is it not? The covenant of grace, because that's what it is. God did not need to do any of it. He did not need to call forth Abram. He did not need to call forth David or Israel or any of them. God did not need to call us into this covenant, but he has. Why? 
We don't know. Other than that, he is gracious and loving and kind, better than what we deserve. And so as that wonderful hymn puts it in amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. That was the theme song for Abram. That is our theme song. That is the theme song for every believer ever since. God called forth Abram by grace. And it is through grace that he promised those three things, as I mentioned before, a seed or a child, a land, and a blessing. But as I said earlier, none of those things were immediate. Think about this for a moment. Let's take a look at each one of those. A land. It says in verse 3, I took your father Abram from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. God promised the land and then told him to go forth from his father into that land. And that is where Abram lived, was in Canaan. But Abram never owned any of it. He never received any portion of the land of Canaan. God said to him, I will give this to your descendants. But while he was in it, it remained the land of the Canaanites. In fact, Abram did not even have enough land of his own to bury his own wife. He had to buy land in order to bury his wife, Sarah. Why? Because he didn't possess any of it. In other words, even though this land was promised to Abram, the Canaanites didn't immediately fall over dead as soon as Abraham walked into the land. In fact, Hebrews 11 says that Abram was a foreigner, a sojourner, an exile, the entirety of his life. The promised land, he got to see the promise but he never actually possessed any of that promise. Likewise, with a seed, with a child, Genesis chapter 12, God says, I will make you into a great nation. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, God doubles down and says, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, in the sand on the seashore. He even changes his name from Abram to Abraham. From great father to father of great nation. But yet, was that immediate? Absolutely not. As you know, Abraham and Sarah were barren for many, many years. In fact, most of their life. And that was a spiritual struggle for them. They knew God had promised this, and yet God had not shown any of the fulfillment. So much so that they take things into their own hands. And that's why Ishmael comes about by Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. But think of how that would have been a difficulty and a struggle for him. That Abraham had to introduce himself as Abraham. That every time he met someone, he was saying, my name is, I am a father of a great nation. And no doubt, when people heard his name, they would say, oh, really, a great nation. How many children do you have? And he would have to say, I have none. How humbling that must have been. 
They must have scoffed and thought, right, a great nation. Good luck with that. Abraham had to be patient. Something that he was not good at, nor are we. In fact, he had to wait all the way until he was 100 years old before God gave him the fulfillment of that promise. And then, and only then, it was just one. One child. And I think there is great irony in Joshua's recounting of this history when he says there in the end of verse 3, And I will make his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. (laughs) I'll make his offspring many. I gave him one. And then it goes on to say, And to Isaac I gave him Jacob and Esau. Two more. So, in other words, God promised to seed a nation, but it doesn't seem that God was too quick, at least in our opinion, to fulfill it. Both Abraham and Isaac had to wait a long time. Abram was 100 years old, and we believe that Isaac was about 60 years old before Jacob and Esau were born. In other words, from the time of the promise, Genesis chapter 12, until the time that Jacob and Esau were born was easily well over 100 years. And how many offspring did they have in total? Three. Abram had one son and two grandsons. That is not too many, especially in that day and age, not even in this day and age. I'm the father of four And I had four children before the age of 30. Abram and Isaac combined didn't have as many offspring as I do currently. And so we see that God works in a way that is much different than what we'd think. God works in a mysterious way. And the third aspect that he would be a blessing, that his descendants would be a blessing... And notice this, it says that, And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. If you know anything about the stories of Jacob and Esau, both were essentially scoundrels, and Jacob doubly so. And again, goes back to that aspect of God saving by grace, not by merit. Yet, God made his covenant promise to Jacob and not to Esau. He says the older will serve the younger. And as a result, that aspect of blessing would be given through the line of Jacob and not by Esau. But yet, what do we read here as Joshua recounts this history? It's Esau who inherits the land. He inherits the hill country of Seir. But what happens to Jacob? Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. In other words, they became slaves. And again, you think blessing. God, you got that mixed up. You blessed Esau and cursed Jacob. But no, we see that God was indeed blessing Jacob, even though he was sending him and his descendants down to Egypt to be slaves. Again, God moves 
in a mysterious way, ways much different than what we would think. But Joshua goes on here to say to the people of Israel that God has called you forth as a fulfillment of all of these things that were given to Abraham, a fulfillment of the seed, fulfillment of the land, and a fulfillment of the blessing. And he does so in verse 6, that God called you out of Egypt. That God called you out of darkness, called you out of captivity, called you out of slavery, much in the same way as Abraham was called out of his darkness, out of his idol worship. We see here this deliverance is a picture of God's salvation given to Israel as a whole. And God did so by making a mockery of the Egyptians, of their gods and of their idols, by giving the ten plagues. And so we see the fulfillment of these promises made to Abraham through Israel. Obviously the fulfillment of the seed, that the children of Abraham from Isaac and then from Jacob, and then from Jacob his twelve sons now have grown truly into a great nation. But it took over 400 years. 400 years of being in Egypt, in most of that time in captivity, in slavery. But they came into Egypt as only 78 people. And now they leave, most likely in the millions, as God delivers them out of Egypt. And so has God been faithful to his promise to give Abraham a nation? Absolutely. We see it here. As these people are gathered around Joshua, they could look around and say, that's right, look at us. We now are very numerous. We are truly a nation. God has fulfilled that promise. Had God blessed them? Yes, absolutely. As he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, oh, bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. We see this first with the Egyptians, that even as they tried to essentially curse the Israelites, it was they that were cursed. They were the ones that were drowned in the sea. As darkness was put between them and the Egyptians, and the sea came upon them and covered them. As Joshua says, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And then he goes on to talk about how God defeated the kings that were before them and destroyed them along the way. He gives this example of how Balak, the king of uh, Moab, tried to come and curse Israel. In fact, he hires Balaam, if you remember that story. But Balaam is not able to curse Israel. Instead, he curses Balak, the king of Moab, and he blesses Israel. Again, in fulfillment, that God would bless those who bless you. And would curse those who curse you. And so we see it again. God's faithfulness to his promise. His promise he made to Abraham. Fulfilled in Israel. And then obviously we see the fulfillment of the land. As they recount all the victories. In verse 11 through 13. That they went in to possess the land. And he gives there in verse 11 the list of the nations that they were defeated. But notice as he says there at the end of 
verse 11. Don't think that it was by your might or by your strength that you were able to do this. No, God says, I gave them into your hands and I drove them out before you. And it was not by sword or by bow in verse 12, but it was by God's faithfulness to his promise. His promise made to Abram that I would give a land to your descendants. Again, we see God's covenantal faithfulness to his people. And not only that, but it is a land that is fully developed. As he says in verse 13, you come into a land in which you have not labored, cities that you have not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Again, the abundance of God's blessing to his people. I think what is amazing of all of this is the context of where this event is taking place. You probably passed right over it when we were reading it. It says that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. Now, if you know your history, you know that it was Shechem that God first brought Abram into the land. And it was there at Shechem that God made this promise to Abraham that this is the land. This is the place. This is the place where your descendants shall inherit. And this is the place where they will be made into a great nation. And they are the people that I am going to bless. And has God fulfilled that promise? Absolutely. And they're at that very place where God made all of those promises known. But it took well over 500 years before those promises were accomplished. But as Joshua's point is, promise made, promise fulfilled. And so just two quick applications then, obviously, as the major application is this, is that God is always faithful to his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? No, obviously those are rhetorical questions where the answer is no. He fulfills everything that he has promised. Every word that he has said from beginning to end, he will make sure it takes place because our God is not a God that lies. And yet at the very same time, we must say that his way of fulfillment is very different than what we would think or even what we would think is best. But again, we are reminded of the scripture, my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, nor are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that was true, surely, with Abraham. It's true of Israel. It's true of the church. It's true for you and me. Why does God do it that way? Why doesn't God just make a straight line between promise and its fulfillment? Well, I think it's a reminder that it's all of him and none of us. It reminds us to trust him and trust him again. 
and trust him some more. Always and forever, with every breath we are given, we must continue to walk by faith and not by sight, believing those promises that he has given to us. And so God is always faithful to his promise. And second, we can say God is always faithful to his covenant. He is a faithful covenant-keeping God. For as we read Genesis chapter 12 as new covenant believers, we know that this promise given to Abraham is not ultimately fulfilled in Israel, is it? But it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That Christ was the true seed given through the line of Abraham. That he is the son of God. That it's through him that he is making a great people, a great nation. The church made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That it's through Christ that the promise to Abraham that his seed will be numerous as the stars in the heaven and the sand on the seashore is coming to its fulfillment. And that it is all by grace. That same grace given to Abraham is the same grace that is given to us that we can come and be a part of that same covenant that we are brought into that great nation, that we are brought into the people of God as the church, that it's through Christ that we are truly blessed. We have been given every blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus that we lack no good things. That all is ours in Christ. And one day in Christ we will possess all of the heavens and all of the earth. As we dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. We won't just be given a small dusty land in the Middle East. We'll be given the entirety of this. That is the land that is being given to us because it is being fulfilled in Christ. People of God, God is good. God is faithful. We need never doubts nor worry. Even when things go drastically different than what we think or what we believe. Just one last quote that I recently heard said this, history never says goodbye, but history says see you later. Now I'm not sure if that is always the case, but with God's covenant history, his history is always fulfilled. His promises that were made will come to fruition, sometimes much later and in much different circumstances than what we would think or even that which we would imagine. But God... Every step of the way has given us every reason to believe, every reason to trust him. For indeed, he is the faithful, covenant-keeping God. Amen.